Welcome to the Extra Podcast, 500-year Reformation Edition. I'm joined around the table with John Mulder and Greg. My name is Daniel Markin. We are three millennials enjoying the spoils of the Reformation 500 years later on this October 31st Extra Podcast morning. Daniel, I have to say that was that was some fantastic intro music you had right there. You need to tell the good people what the playlist was called. Well, that was called that song was called Festive Sounds, yep. Medieval and Renaissance Music. Did you buy that album? Nope. It's on Apple Music. And you can stream it whenever you want. It's true. Especially today on the Re- Did I mention it? It's the Reformed Reformation Day. <laughs> Wow. 500 years. Yes, 500 years since Martin Luther nailed those took a hammer theses. and a nail and put some paper on a door. Which isn't the common thing. Everyone thinks it's a rebellious thing, but it was actually the, the doors of the church were mm-hmm. a posting board where mm-hmm. people would post like, hey, I lost my dog. Yeah, one of the ways I've heard it described is this basically was Luther trying to enter into an academic debate about mm-hmm. the issues that he had listed. And it was basically a way for him to say, let's have this discussion about these issues. And so he posted them on the church and the world went crazy. It's true. The world did go crazy. Yep. People lost their minds over this. 500 years Well, not not only their minds, uh, the Reformation, a lot of people lost their lives over this. This was a a significant moment in church history where uh, the... The, some of the core doctrines of the church were, were being debated mm-hmm. and being debated in a context where it didn't really matter what, uh, what people thought. It mattered what the Pope said was true. And yep. so to have this kind of a, of a dialogue of this kind of a debate, um, and eventually leading to, uh, all kinds of people being persecuted and all kinds of people being killed for it. And our, our church Northview finds our, uh, traditional denominational home as a part of the Anabaptist uh, community. So the Mennonite brethren community finds ourselves as the, we were the Anabaptists were even more radical than the other reformers in the sense that they, they agreed with all the solas. They liked the solas. What they wanted was the church to be separate from the state, Mm -hmm. which was the other reformers were like, no, it's okay. Yep. Church be and patient, state, right? It's all Wasn't good. It a kind of a patience thing where if we, like, this is a, already a big wound, we don't want to, like, poke the wound a little well, bit more? Well, Calvin's, John Calvin's view of uh, ecclesiology of the church is who the church is and how the church should engage with the world was very much that the church and state should be linked and you should have a Christian, mm-hmm. his whole goal was a Christian Geneva, um, the yep. transformation of Geneva so that it was Christian. Yep. Um, what's interesting was that the... The Anabaptists, the radicals were the ones who were pushing to have it be separate and they were pushing for it to be separate because of sola scriptura. They saw in the scriptures, no reason for the empire and the church to be linked. And so they wanted to remove infant baptism, which was a sign of uh, citizenship. 
they wanted to remove it and say, no, baptism isn't about being included in the state. It's about your involvement in the church. And actually only adults can be baptized because that's all we see in the scriptures. Only believers can be baptized. And so there was a whole thing. And eventually a lot of Anabaptists were losing their lives. They're being killed by Protestants and Catholics. And what was that? There was a, the big battle where lots of them died. The Anabaptists. Oh, there was a bunch, but What's there that were, one called? there was one in Munster. That's the one. Munster was a great example of of what happens when crazy people lead a movement and unhinge it completely from the scriptures. This was actually a yeah. group of Anabaptists who decided they wanted to merge the church with the state, which is like the most unradical Reformation thing you could possibly do, and yet they did it anyways. Uh, and they. Uh, their goal was to set up a new Jerusalem to create the, a new creation. And one of the leaders called himself King David and he had a harem and a whole, it was a real mess of, yep. of weirdness. Wow. Kind of like a Halloween. Yeah. Nice. Sure. Sure. I mean, it was awful and a lot of people lost their lives, but that's okay. Yeah. Let's talk about it like it's Halloween. You, you mentioned Greg, this was a, a big turning point in church history, but I think it's also just in, actual history of the world. It's a, it's a oh, huge yeah. thing. It changed the tra- trajectory of a lot of things. I mean, the reasons, some of the reasons why we are very individualistic and why we value mm. our own opinions and on all these things have their roots back in the reformation and the enlightenment that came out of that. Yep. Well, I'm preceding. I mean, Daniel, this is why your playlist was really good. You had the Sorry, Greg. The, rena- <laughs> the Renaissance uh, is... Wow, if we haven't lost all of our listeners by now, we, we apologize to those of you that are still with us that Daniel has control over the music. Totally. The, re- the Renaissance is what really prompted the Reformation. So anyways, this is a lot of history, which is, I know, not why people listen to the podcast. But but here, here's a... Let me try to tie a little bit of a bow on this conversation for us. Mm-hmm. I, I think that... It's important for us as Christians to know where we, uh, where our tradition of our local church fits in in the scheme of Catholic, Protestant, uh, and then even within Protestantism, are we uh, d- do we fit within the more reformed, traditionally reformed camp, or more of the Lutheran camp, or more of the radical camp? And so, as uh, Northview, we have a lot of people who who really love the solas. And we have people who are really warm to the theology of Luther and of Calvin, especially regarding justification and, and grace and that kind of stuff. Very quick. What are the five solas? Uh, sola. So sola scriptura, which is scripture alone. Sola Christus uh, by Christ alone. Sola gratia, which is uh, grace alone. Sola fide, which is faith alone. And sola Deo Gloria, which is to the glory of God alone. So those five doctrines are, are what summarize Reformation teaching. The difference between Anabaptists and other reformers is not on the five solas. It's on the question, how does the church function in the world? So those of you who are interested in these kinds of things, you can look up a document called the Schleitheim Confession from 1527. Oh man, that's all I want to do tonight, Greg. You better. That's all I'm doing tonight is I'm going to go home. I'm going to eat some candy and eat some candy. I'm going to put on my favorite playlist, Festive Sounds. I'm going to read the Schleitheim Confession. Okay, continue. And you'll notice there's only seven parts, only seven articles that the Schleitheim Confession states, and they all have to do with who's the church, who can be a part of the church, how does the church interact with the world around us? Because their issue as Anabaptists wasn't 
let's rehash all the five solas. Yep. Their issue was asking the question, how does the church engage with the world? Which is still a really relevant Absolutely. question. And how and your views of the church's participation in culture, your views of the church's involvement in culture, what's the goal of the church mm-hmm. in the culture, all have to do with your ecclesiology and how you think the church should function. So we all have mostly an assumed view. Um, and we might not even know where those views come from. Some mm-hmm. of us are really strong on the transformation of culture. That's very Calvinist. Yep. What's funny is you have a lot of people who don't like Calvinism, but really want to see the culture be transformed by the church. Right. And I'll say, okay, that sounds really Calvinist, but no, no, I don't like Calvinism. I just want to see everything be transformed by the church. You're like, yeah, John Calvin yeah, wanted the like, same thing. Kind of like Calvinism. Yeah, that's what Calvin was up yeah, for. John wanted the same thing. And you have other people who would say, no, we, I want the church to be a counterculture in the culture and a yep. prophetic voice in it and that kind of stuff. So. Mm-hmm. Here's two books if you want to read about um, how the church can engage in the culture that present kind of opposing views that might be interesting for you uh, in the spirit of continuing the Reformation identity of Anabaptists and who's the church, how should we engage in culture? First book by Douglas Wilson called Empires of Dirt. Mm. He would have a viewpoint that is more the church should uh, be a transforming agent of the culture. The second book by Rod Dreher called The Benedict Option. Mm. And that book is more saying, let's have the church intentionally withdraw from the society in some ways so that we can train ourselves in um, in our faith and in, in ground ourselves in a really robust Christian worldview for the purpose of intentional engagement back into the culture. So it's not a complete withdrawal. It's a withdrawal to prepare ourselves so that we can engage in the culture, but not necessarily with the same transformational overtones that Wilson's book has. Have you fully read both of them? I have. Cool. And, and I'm, which one are you, Greg? I'm a Ben Op guy. No way, really. Which it's might not surprise people, but it might surprise others. Well, I wasn't surprised because you literally mentioned that book probably once a day. No, I don't. Yes, you do. A week. I sit in intern. It's true, once a week. Yeah. I sit in some of the immersed classes with uh, Daniel and John, and I'm in some of those classes with them. And when it comes to church and culture, I can't not mention the Ben Op. It's yeah. true. Even when we're like, hey, John, you want to go grab lunch? Greg, want to grab lunch? Yeah. Benedict's an option. Like eggs Benedict option. Yeah. 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 That was a bad joke, Daniel. That was a dad joke. And uh, you're not even close to dad status yet. So Daniel, you had two, we had a few conversation points coming out of this whole reformation. Yeah. So yeah, thing you want to actually questions, right? That people well, wrote we in. We had some questions that are, you know what? Related to the uh, reformation. Good. You got signed out of your of program. Yeah. Wow. This is what happens. You do live radio. Yep, because the people that are listening to us, this was recorded on Tuesday. So the first, if I remember correctly, the first question had, justification. To, had to do with the big doctrine of justification that mm-hmm. came out of the Reformation. Mm-hmm. Yes. So John, clarify for us the doctrine of justification that was such a big deal for the Reformers. So the doctrine that was a big deal for the Reformers was this idea that justification is by grace alone through faith alone. So basically what they what they argued was that our justification is completely and solely an act of God's grace that is worked out in our lives through our faith in Christ's work. Hmm. And so this was this was a huge deal then because the the Catholic Church actually argued something that was completely different. They would argue yes, justification begins through faith in Christ's work and the grace of God, but you you complete that justification hmm. by participating in different works. And so when you sin, there are certain things that you can participate in to 
remove those stains from your record, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Uh, wouldn't the stains also, there was a thing that the Catholic Church believed, I'm not sure if they still believe it, about purgatory. And that is a middle place, correct me if I'm wrong, but where you would, uh, when you die, you don't go to heaven directly. You have to go and do time, kind of like jail, in purgatory, and you wait for a time. So, in order to minimize your time in purgatory, you could pay the church indulgences. Yeah, so indulgences have been uh, out, outlawed by the church. Mm-hmm. Uh, purgatory as a doctrine actually is still a really live issue. There was a friend of mine who's a, a converted converted from evangelicalism to uh, Catholicism. And uh, yeah, purgatory is still a live issue. I, he was having a conversation on Facebook with some of his friends about how crazy evangelicals are for not believing in purgatory because how how do all of those sins that you commit after your conversion get, get dealt with? So one of the images that I've found helpful a little bit is the idea of a cup being f- totally filled with water. And the doctrine of justification uh, for Catholics is that when you are baptized, that cup is fully filled with uh, infused with righteousness juice. But when you sin, juice starts coming out of the cup. And the way you add more juice to the cup is through the seven sacraments, through, you know, mass and through confession and marriage and all kinds of other things. Mm -hmm. And the goal of the human life is to die with a full cup. But what do you, what happens if your cup is not totally full when you die? Well, you have to go to a place, not heaven. You have to go somewhere else where time can be spent so that the cup can be filled. And this was what was going on in the day of Luther was you had a guy who took that doctrine of purgatory and added onto it. Uh, indulgences by saying a way for you to fill your cup so that you can get out of purgatory is to give money to the church. Not only that, the way you can get your family members out of purgatory is now it's not even your own works for your own salvation. It's your own works for other people's Mm -hmm. release from purgatory is by giving indulgences, paying money to the church so that they can build. Wasn't it St. Basilica of Rome? Yeah. Yeah, St. Peter's Basilica was built uh, off of the, the money that was earned through the selling of these indulgences and yeah. Luther, Luther actually didn't have the indulgences for Luther weren't the problem. Mm. It was the fact that they were being sold to people mm. as like this, like get out of jail free card. And Luther's argument was, if that's the case, why doesn't the Pope just offer indulgences? Mm. Like if the Pope has this authority and this ability, mm. he should willingly and, and just out of love for the people mm. offer these indulgences to these people that are, are still living, or even if he had the ability to release them from purgatory, he should do those things. This is part of his 95 theses is that he's wanting to debate these things as to mm-hmm. if this is a thing, why are we selling them instead of just freely offering them to people? Mm-hmm. That's great. So you can see the, the transformation or the progression of Luther's, even his own theology, mm-hmm. right? From when he starts as a priest, Catholic priest, yep. nailing these conversation points onto a wall, uh, which in a talk I gave recently, I, I phrased it by saying like Luther was putting these on the wall because he wanted to start a conversation, mm-hmm. but he sparked a reformation. Totally. And I do, I, I'm a, I am, have conviction that I think Luther at the beginning had no intention of even developing the kinds of doctrines that he did at the time that he was nailing those on the, the door. I think eventually he was bringing his views to their logical conclusions, but at the time he was, much more inclined to to keep much of what Catholic doctrine was teaching, but just make some tweaks to it where he thought it needed to be more biblical. Right, which you can see in in his willingness to hold closer to some of the, like, even Catholic doctrines 
So after after it became kind of like Lutherans mm-hmm. and, and Catholics, the Lutheran kind of beliefs and doctrines are are f- more similar to Catholic belief and doctrine than some of the other reformers. You talked about the radical reformers earlier. They they went all the way. Yep. Whereas Luther stayed closer. His his goal was even in this division to still try to be able to find some way of, yep. I think finding reconciliation. Yeah. Yeah. So the doctrine of justification, um, like John said, like, by grace through faith because of the work of Jesus yeah. alone. And now his, the two words I think that are helpful theologically infused righteousness is that we can add to our justification through our works and the participating in the sacraments. Right. And and that's, that's the, that would have been the Catholic position. Yep. The cup needs to be filled with juice. Yep. The other one is a imputed righteousness. It's something that's just declared over you because mm-hmm. of what Christ has done in his perfect life, right? His sacrificial death and his attributing or ap- imputing his righteousness to others. So the image I've used for that one is it's a, it's a megaphone. It's the doctrine of justification is God picking up a megaphone and declaring you to be righteous because of what Christ has done. Yep. So rather than a cup that God filled once and then when we sin, we have to keep filling it up. Right. Righteousness, justification is a declaration of God over the lives of those who have faith in Jesus. Right. Two very different ideas of justification, which still I've read some articles today about people saying how the Reformation isn't important anymore. But that's still a disagreement among Catholics and Protestants. Yes. Our view of justification yes. as either imputed, declared over you by a megaphone from God himself or infused a, a water cup that gets filled with infusion, righteousness juice that you do yourself at yes. points. And I think the big, the big disagreement is still over that one word alone. Mm. Is yep. it, is it Sola. justification by faith alone? Right. Or is it justification by faith and, and right. Yeah. And that's the scandal of it all is how can it only be by faith? And that's what should take us by guard, but that's what off guard, but that's one of the things that makes it so great. Yeah. Which, which re- brings up the very legitimate logical question. Okay. So if it's by faith alone, then what is the point in me living this call to, to live like Jesus? Right. What's the point of it? Like clearly what you're saying now gives me license to act however I want to, because it doesn't matter what I do. Yep. What matters is what's declared over me. So why why bother following if it's not going to affect my justification? Absolutely. That's and that's a question that Paul has answered in basically all of his letters. Mm. But I mean, especially in Romans where we're going through right now, this is I mean, basically the way you phrase the question is the way he actually asks in is it Romans six, beginning of Romans six. Mm. But I think the big thing is to realize that sanctification is different than justification. So what's sanctification? So sanctification is the process that we go through in being transformed and being made more like Christ throughout this life. Mm. So is there, when we become a Christian, is there a certain potential of sanctification that we, we have, that we can reach in the sense that, because now we, we are in the process of being sanctified mm-hmm. and there is still that pull of the flesh and we will still fail. Yep. Is there like a, you know, a level 100 that I could level up to in my, my Christian life, or is it kind of, um, I'm only ever going to get to level 55 because I keep sinning. Did you know what I mean by that? Or how much victory over sin can we have in this life as we are being sanctified? Right. I I think we should. So first I think the the ultimate goal is to look like Christ. Mm -hmm. We will not, we will not achieve that or have that 
experience until we are glorified mm. in the new heavens, and the new earth. Mm. So, so our complete sanctification will not take place until the sometime in the future when Christ returns. But in the, the meantime, there should be, I think, I think one of the best illustrations for this is if you take a look at the, the, a graph or a chart of like the stock market over the last 70 years, mm. the general direction that that, that that has moved is in a upward trajectory towards mm. a higher value. Yep. So if you're going to put sanct- like complete sanctification at the top of that chart, then our Christian lives should look like they are progressing towards that. Right. But if you take short looks at the stock market, you're also going to see times where it it falls off a cliff. Yeah, massive and, recession. And we will have experiences like that in our lives where there will be times where besetting sin or rebelliousness take hold of our life. And we we seem to think that we're going in the wrong direction. And yet we we shouldn't lose heart in those moments. We should actually... Hmm. Per, press into God in those moments to realize that no, no, he's, he's still doing his work in us. Mm. We, we still have this, this fight with the flesh and the spirit in our, inside of us. And, and so we should continue to, to press on and we mm. should be able to see mm. from, if you look back five, 10, 15 years of your Christian life, you should be able to see, oh man, I, yeah, God worked that out of my life and God has been growing me in these ways. And oh man, I'm still in the same place I was mm. in regards to these certain things as I was five years ago, but thank God that he's worked out all these other things in my life. Right. And I think oftentimes what happens is we get so focused on the tunnel vision of like in the moment or that one thing that's bothering us that we, we can't see all of what God has done. Mm. Yeah. Like the idea, John, I like that to use a sports analogy, you will have more winning seasons by the end of your career than you will have losing seasons. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There was a, in the, I forget the years, but out of the Wesleyan movement, there was a particular branch in the Wesleyan movement um, called the Methodists who part of some of their views of sanctification, I don't want to say it was all Methodists, but but a large part of the some of the Methodist viewpoints on sanctification was that it only mattered the sins that you committed. So what, what they meant was you could achieve a sinless state because you wouldn't actively do any sinful actions. And so you could, in some uh, schools of thought in, through church history, you, you could achieve a level of sanctification where you are sinless in your actions. Um, the, so I heard a story from John Newfelt on um, Back to the Bible Canada, which if you're a podcast listener and you want to have a podcast more than once a week, you could uh, download the, or subscribe to the Back to the Bible podcast. He talked about this in a, in a podcast I was listening to recently where he said he met a guy who had a pin on his jacket that's had a number 20 on it. And so he asked him, what's, what's the 20 for? And he said, oh, that's how many years I've lived sinlessly now. Because his, he was buying into this this Wesleyan this particular Wesleyan view of sanctification that that says that you can achieve a level of sanctification in this life where you will no longer act sinfully, and then John makes the comment that he thinks by wearing the pin he's actually acting sinfully. Yeah, there you go. Because of pride, <laughs> so he said that the pin doesn't even work. But but there is this tension right between the idea that we are filled with the Spirit. Mm-hmm. Paul tells us to live like we're filled with the Spirit that we should demonstrate the fruit of the spirit in our life. 
that uh, we should, he's going to say in, in Romans 8, he's, he's going to tell us to, to fight sin, to kill sin in our lives. Be, be active in your destroying of the sins in your own life and yet recognize that part of the Christian life is a repentance and turning back to God in faith, asking for him to, to forgive us and fill us with the spirit so that we wouldn't keep sinning. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. so there's, there's this tension so I, I agree. I think the best image that we can have is one of trajectory. Yeah. And so then once you finish your life, a life of sanctification, then eventually it's glorification. That's the third step where you're yep. glorified with Christ in the new heavens and the new earth. Yep. Now, here's a question for you. Just building off of this. What about the person who on their deathbed dies, hmm. but they receive Christ? Do mm-hmm. they? So they, we would say, yes, they believed. And if it's true mm-hmm. belief, mm-hmm. yes, they are justified. Mm-hmm. But then they die right away. Glorified? Do they skip sanctification, or is their sanctification ten minutes? Um, what do you guys think of that? Yeah, I mean, this is where you develop. You can try to develop a lot of doctrines based on the deathbed. Right. Uh, I would say the general rule is such that um, the Christian life is going that there is going to be a Christian life that is lived. But uh, yeah, if we want to say how long was their span of sanctification? Yeah, maybe it was a few minutes, and so right. That's Sure. Whatever. I think one of the things that people have done with this is they've said, right. But if I live a life of like 80 years of growing in Jesus and growing in my sanctification, and that guy comes to faith in like the last minute of his life, then surely my experience in eternity is going to be of a different kind than the one on the deathbed. And this is where we get into, I think we've talked about this in the past, probably earlier in the year or something, when Mm -hmm. we were talking about the rewards doctrines and the parable of the laborers in the vineyard. How do we make sense of those who are hired in the first hour of the day and those who are hired in the very last hour of the day, and yet they receive the same reward from from the steward? So It's kind of like the thief on the cross. Jesus says, today you'll be with me in paradise. Yeah. Right. So this is where I think if we believe that our Christian life is... Through, by grace, through faith in Christ, that we are more willing to say, no, everyone is going to receive the same prize, the same gift, the same reward at the end, regardless of how long we lived in response to our initial conversion right. in Christ. Because yep. I think it glorifies God if they are saved on their deathbed, because how gracious is he? Mm. And it glorifies God if someone has lived 80 years because how good is God for bringing that person along totally. right? and, and, and saving them and bringing them to saving faith through sanctification. Right. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a it's kind of a win-win. Dude, Craig, Absolutely. if there was ever a bigger win-win, I mean, name a bigger win-win. I, I don't know. That not, is the biggest no. win-win. No. I can't. God gets all the glory. God gets all the glory. Sola del gloria. Sola del gloria. Sola del gloria. There you go. Okay, here, here's another Reformation question for you boys. This was sent in from a listener. Jason. That's all you'll get. You don't get the last name. But he says this. It seems to me that much of the conflict spurring the Reformation and Martin Luther's posting of the 95 Theses had a lot to do with the abuses of power within the Roman Catholic clergy. Martin Luther wanted to empower the laity. But what do we mean by laity? The common person? Yep. All right, let's go. So he wanted to empower the common person and the common man in general and protested against the church as an infallible source of authority, meaning uh, the Pope or the, uh, the clergy who are working there, that's the source of authority. Have we gotten away from this today? And if not, 
what kind of freedom does the laity have? What kind of voice do they have in today's church? So I think what the listener is asking is, um, 500 years later, how much power does the laity have in the local church? Right. Yeah. So there's, I think there's two angles to the priesthood of all believers. That's helpful here. Um, one is that core to Catholic doctrine is the necessity of the priest to be a mediator of the means of grace. So the the Catholic church would say, you do not have a church unless you have the priest. Right. Right. So uh, what that means is that you cannot receive more infused justification juice in your cup that is spilling out because you sin. You can't receive those things like the sacraments and uh, other things mm-hmm. um, unless it's delivered by a priest. Martin Luther and others were saying, no way. We we are all, we all have access to the Father through our great high priest, Jesus, who is the mediator of, the mediator between us and God. Yep. And so the priesthood of all believers isn't, to say that every single person has the exact same role in the church. Right. It's to say that every single person, because of the mediating work of Jesus, has the exact same access to the Father. So the other angle there of like how much power does the laity have, it depends on your your church polity yep. a little bit. Yep. In our context, uh, the laity actually has the most power. Uh, we're an elder-led, North is an elder-led congregational church. So what that means is that the congregation has appointed uh, a number of elders who are lay people mm-hmm. to be the, the day-to-day uh, governing group over all of the church staff and right. over all the people who are paid by the church. So the, the COE or the Council of Elders are all lay people and they have the most authority when it comes to they as a council are the ones who will lead our church. Yep. And those elders are under the accountability of the congregation. Mm-hmm. So it may look like, oh, everything's happening at Northview because like that guy wanted it done or this girl wanted that done and I need a power position, all that kind of stuff. But in reality, our structure is is trying, it's probably not perfect, but it's trying to say look, the, the church is about the congregation mm-hmm. and the congregation should be leading in a communal sense, mm-hmm. not by one CEO at the top of the chart, making all the calls and everyone else is under their, right. their dictates. Well, so, I mean, that's part of the reason then, because uh, we have, how many elders do we actually have? We have about almost 20? I think we have like 18 yeah. right now. And so part and, of that- And, uh, sorry to cut you off, three non-voting Right. Elders in Jeff, Steve, and Ezra, mm-hmm. our senior leadership team. Mm-hmm. So they sit on the Council of Elders as a as the bridge between the Council of Elders and the rest of us as church staff. But when it comes to the major votes and that kind of stuff, of course they can talk in the meetings, but um, guests are allowed at elder meetings too because mm-hmm. we're a congregational church. So if you're a member of Northview, you're you're allowed to come to the elder meetings and observe what happens there. It's it's open to the to the membership. Um, no one comes usually. No. Sometimes people come for prayer. Yep. Oh yeah, totally. And that's great. You should come. If you're sick, you should have the elders pray for you. Absolutely. James five. tells us to. Yeah, James who, five. Who would you email for that? If people want to come get prayer with the elders, just email uh, Northview at Northview.org and they'll send you to the right person. Yep. Cool. Um, but part of the reason uh, I was bringing this up, we have 20 yep. people. 
or 18 elders, it, I mean, because there's so many, that's one of the reasons it takes, sometimes it feels like a lot to get done or it takes mm. a long time for things to get done. Right. And, uh, and so I guess that's one of the downsides of it, but it's also, I mean, part of, I mean, lots of checks and balances. Yep. So one of the, the, one of the convictions of the radical reformers was that each church is autonomous, is self laud self-governed. So we've, as Northview, we voluntarily participate with other churches in a conference of churches, the Mennonite Brethren of BC and Canada, but we aren't owned by the conference. We are a self-governed, autonomous local body. That's a Anabaptist conviction about the local church as an autonomous group. And so we are governed as a church by the council of elders who are appointed and accountable to the congregation. Mm -hmm. So if you want to know why membership matters at a church like Northview, it's because it's out of the membership that things like elders are chosen and held accountable. It's not just anyone who comes to Northview on a weekend has that kind of voice in the life of our church. And this is why we do our annual and congregational general meetings is for you to hear from the elders, how things have been going the past few months when it comes from a big, big picture of where we at, what are the challenges, what are the issues, what are the strengths? And it's an opportunity for members to ask questions and engage and raise suggestions and all kinds of stuff. So, I mean, I love all that. I want to take this a slightly different direction uh, in the sense that one of the things too Martin Luther wanted was the common person to have ability to read and interpret the scriptures. Mm. So how much freedom do we have in that? And is that, and where I'm going with this is, is that our, maybe if we don't feel freedom in that area, is that our fault for not knowing our scriptures well enough? Uh, I, I would say this. I don't think Martin Luther ever wanted it to just be one person on their own, reading mm-hmm. their Bible, coming to their own conclusions. He, he wanted scripture alone to be our highest authority for faith and life, but not the person alone with scripture. Yeah, that's great. Which is, I think, how we view it now. <laughs> totally. Right. We, we think of it as, well, scripture alone means that I just sit down in my room and read my Bible and whatever conclusion I come to, that's, that's the word of God for me. Yeah. And Martin Luther would say, no, that's ridiculous. Um, and I think rightly so in the sense, Luther wanted the right interpretation of scripture to happen within the church, within the body of believers. Um, Luther might've restricted it more to the, the clergy or the uh-huh. elders of a church, whereas uh, the radical reformers are actually going to broaden that out a little bit to the community of faith. Yep. So, but yes, I would say scripture alone as our highest authority, but not on our own in, but in community with others. So when you, when you read something and you're thinking, okay, is this what God, God's word actually says mm. before you say, yes, this is absolutely God's word. You should be going to people and, and mm-hmm. asking them, Hey, right. this is, this is what I'm, I'm reading here. What do you think? Am I on the right track? Am I, Am I missing something? Did I did I lose something in the context, or is there something culturally that I've I've missed that's yeah. caused me to see this differently than I think all of the people in the the rest of the church have seen it? Mm. Um, and that can be really helpful. And I think oftentimes we we neglect church history in this discussion as well. Mm. You know, as being reformers, we we seem to think that the reformers threw out all of church history and tradition, mm. and yet they would have said, no, 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 no. They have a really, really good voice, and we need to listen to what they have said. Yep. They're just not as authoritative as Scripture. Uh-huh. Yeah. Right? So just, if you were going to put them in a balance, Scripture is going to always win. Yeah. It's always going to be Scripture as the highest authority. So 
that's, right. I think, how a helpful way to look at what scripture alone actually means. Yeah. And one of the roles of an elder is the they're, they're called to be apt to teach. Like they need to be able to have a nose for doctrine and be able to smell out bad doctrine and be able to, to know what's good. And so in the context of local churches, the, the commandment is for the elders to, so plural elders, to be responsible for the doctrine of the church to make sure that it, it is close in line with what the scriptures actually teach. So I love, John, what you said that sola scripture means scripture alone. It doesn't mean me alone with scripture. Mm-hmm. It's it still, it's a communal act. It's a God's gift to the church, mm-hmm. not God's gift to me individually. It is a gift to me as an individual, but only because I'm a part of the church. Yeah. Just to clarify that it's not only Bible reading community. It's good to read our Bibles on our own in devotion, in prayer, praying through the Psalms. Yep. But also it's incredible to do it with others too. Yep. Yep. And so that's, that's the gift. We all have that ability. Yep. Neato. Well, let me close with this gentlemen. This has been a fantastic show thus far. And I would be remiss. I would be saddened if we didn't just give it a little bit more. Give the people some of what they wanted on this Reformation 500th year anniversary. Question is this. Paper paper Bible or electronic Bible? <laughs> oh, that's a tough one. No, for me, it's the, it's the situation. I don't know. I, I, I like both, just depending on what's going on. If I'm going to sit down in my living room and read scripture for an evening... I'm mm-hmm. um, I'm opening up a hardback Bible or like a paper Bible. Mm. Um, that's, I just that's so hipster it, of you, John. You millennial. Oh, I know. I just find it, it. It's for me. It's easier to read, and it's just a comfort thing. It has nothing to do with like what's better, what's worse. Like it, honestly, I don't yeah. know. I grew up with books. I like actually holding a book in my hand. Yeah, and that's just that. Although there will be times where I'm in church where it's really easy then to just have it all on my phone and I can jump between taking notes and reading scripture really easily. So, yeah. yeah, it's, I brought this up in our conversation before we started recording. I'm pretty sure it was Aristotle who was worried about, uh, writing our communication acts. His, his point was basically once we go to writing, all kinds of confusion is going to come out because we can't see the person. We can't hear the tone. It's just written down Um, so I think if Aristotle was here, he'd be like, whatever, I don't care. Like if it's, if the medium is a piece of wood shaved down so that it's thin enough that we can hold and put other pieces of wood beside it and it's in a book. Okay. If it's, uh, on your plastic device is wood more holy than plastic, Uh, probably not. No. So I think the issue isn't the, the means or the physical media, uh, I think it, it is about the content mm-hmm. that you're engaging with. That said, we can't be blind or ignorant of the fact that different kinds of media is going to give us a different um, experience. Yep. I think that the convenience factor of having it on our phones can make us be less inclined to treat the word with a sense of gravity mm-hmm. um, that a book, especially a nicer book, would have us more inclined to. And yet that said, you can see people leave their Bibles on the floor and it kicked around yep. and our lost and found is basically a, a take one, leave one Bible collection. Yep. So to say that 
no, you have to have the Bible in a hard copy physical book form or else you're not revering it would, I'd have questions about that based on the amount of personally, uh, dedicated to Jimmy Bibles we have in our lost and found Yeah, that just because it's a book doesn't mean we're going to treat it as, as more sacred than we would as if it was on our, on our device. Right. Mm-hmm. So, well, I think one of the things about if you read your Bible on your phone is it's just easy to get distracted is a text pops in and you're reading that text. And then your mind's no longer dwelling on scripture. You're thinking of the text. Right. So I think the electronic Bible often is very, it's helpful if you're in a, like you're out and you're mm-hmm. like, what is that verse? Or you're waiting for a doctor's appointment. You can just read a little bit of your Bible. Like that's a totally good thing. We use uh, a, like Bible software to prepare our sermons, don't we? We use this, it's called Logos. And um, it basically you have your Bible and you have a bunch of commentaries and that's all on your screen. And so, I mean, we interact with um, electronic Bibles quite frequently here. Yep. Mm-hmm. On the extra podcast. Yes. Sometimes we have it actually here and we're looking at commentaries and reading the text and stuff. But, but if it's not King James Version, it's of the devil. Well, it doesn't count. And that's really why Martin Luther did the Reformation was to right. have the King James Bible. Yeah. So, <laughs> um, I, look, if you're a King James only person, you want to have a debate <clears throat> about that, you can ask a question. I, but I'm joking about it. We're just being silly. But actually, no, if it's the King James, then that's the only Bible. Right, Greg? What do you... You just said we what were joking, you, and then you said, but actually. Yeah. Let's wrap I'm this up. I'm just joking. No <laughs> but I was going to make this last point, too. I, I heard recently in a, uh, I don't know where I was listening to this, a sermon, where someone said that, uh, he, I think he just, he said, there's something so profound about when you w- show up to church and you see um, mm-hmm. men with their families uh, carrying Bibles. And there's that, that symbol that, you know, that's that's the family Bible, and he's he's been reading that, and the, and the wife has hers. And so when you sit down in the... Mm. like in the service, you have that text in front of you and you're reading from it and you constantly look down at it. And you know, you're constantly like, like the Bereans, Mm. you are examining and seeing what the preacher is saying. And you, you have that in front of you. I just think it's such a cool, uh, a cool symbol or just a nice, a good sight to see. Mm. And I've even heard uh, John Piper talk about, he said, one of the things that he wanted in his church is when he would say, turn to chapter, whatever, chapter seven of Romans you would hear in the crowd just a bunch of pages going and moving. He said that's that's one of the sounds he, mm. he aims for. So, mm. yeah, good and discussion. If, and if Piper says it, he's basically like the Pope, so we have to well, listen to it. I mean, if Piper told me to jump off a bridge, Greg, I'd do it. Well, yeah, because it would give you joy. Um, <laughs> <laughs> sorry. It would. I know. All right. Yeah, thanks, Daniel. Well, thank you. It's been a good week. That has been a good week. It's been a good 500 years. Here's to another 500 Here's more. Here's to another 500 more on the extra podcast. We'll see you later. <laughs> <laughs>